It's bad ink jam, but not as we know it. This is bad. Welcome to the Bashcast, brought to you by BookieBashing.net. This is Big, looking at next week's opportunities and the last couple of weeks' worth of profits. This is Bashcast episode number 142. They don't like it up em. It is 21 minutes past 1pm on Sunday, the 7th of July, 2019. Coming up in this afternoon's Bashcast, um, we review uh, the first eight weeks of the golf betting model at BookieBashing.net. Um, just um, cover some stories that have been in the horse racing recently, especially after the last Bashcast where we were discussing Frankie Dettori possibly winning every race in an Ascot day. Um, I'll look at the first week of Wimbledon after the break. The WSOP is in full swing. We have a look at a bad beat and a couple of disqualifications. And um, William Hill close a lot of their high street shops. All of that coming up and more on the Bashcast this afternoon. It's a glorious Sunday afternoon in Worcestershire. I've got um, the Irish Open Golf on in the background. I'll come to the golf model in a bit. Um, we've got a lot of new value models and equity models on in the site to help us gauge different um, more complex bets and opportunities. But there wasn't a pre-prepared model for working out the equity at the Bon Jovi concert a couple of Sundays ago at the Coventry Rico Arena. So um, after a couple of drinks in February, me and my pal and my wife went online and snapped up some Bon Jovi tickets at like 250 quid for three of them. And um, we didn't bother getting any parking you can tell by the way I'm over the age of 40 when my stories about how good the concert was comes down to the efficiency of the parking or not. We didn't get any parking, we just thought we'd wing it when we were there. I don't know if you've ever been to the Coventry Rico Arena. They do have a, like, a massive car parking area outside. I've played, um, I was up there recently for a poker tournament. The oh, I can't remember the name of the poker tournament, but I rocked up on the Monday and just parked in outside the stadium and went into the casino. It was really easy. So I expected to be able to do the same thing. We got there. Um, the parking was prepaid only, and the prepay parking was £25. So we tried to go online and do it for £25, but whilst we were in the queue, but we couldn't. So we were stuck without being able to park. So uh, 
drove down the street and there's a big Tesco's and shopping area next door. And James says, go and park in there, it'll be fine. We'll just go and park in there and then we'll get the car afterwards. It's like no one had ever thought of this ever. We go in and then there are big signs as you go in and it says um, on match days and event days, maximum stay in the car park is two hours or you're going to get a £50 fine. And thought, well, hold on. It's t- it would have been £25 to park at the stadium anyway. So it's kind of just like £25 more expensive than the stadium. I know 50 quid for parking isn't the cheapest parking in the entire world. But look, there's three of us at 16 quid each. Um, uh, so is the plus EV move here to park in there, exceed the two hours... And then accept the car parking penalty. I mean, I don't. I don't see it as fifty quid. I see it just as an extra twenty-five quid over what would have been paid anyway, if that makes sense. And then it says underneath, except, and here's the big one: if you have fifty pounds worth of goods, like a receipt that shows that you've bought fifty pounds worth of goods then you can still park in there for longer than two hours on event days and match days. Well, that's the, that's the, that's the critical factor there because what we'll do is we'll go to see the Bon Jovi for three or four hours um, and then we'll pop into the 24-hour Tesco and we'll get £50 with a big shop and that means that everything is it's essentially going to be free parking. This couldn't be better like if we'd paid £25 prepaid parking to pay uh, be at the Rico Arena, we wouldn't have a £50 big shop at the end of this. So it, it, being free is actually the most plus EV move we could have made. So we ditched the car in Tesco's um, sort of multi-shop car park area by the Rico Arena and we went to see the concert. And then we left at about 11 o'clock. We went back to the 24-hour Tesco and the 24-hour Tesco was closed. <laughs> Okay, right. We're not dead yet. We're not dead yet because there's not just a Tesco's in this shopping complex area. There is a Subway and then there is a Burger King. Now, there's only three of us. And so a long discussion transpired. I mean, look, me and James had had the best pint part of double figure pints at the event. Jen was driving. We're like, can we spend £50 on Subway? So the problem with Subway is it's just too damn cheap. It's tasty. That meatball marinara is a good sub. But even if you get a meatball marinara, a large drink and a cookie, you're not spending more than five or six pounds in um, in Subway. And so between three of us, we would have probably have had to have had three full meals and then make, sort of top up with some crisps and some cookies to take home. And in all, in all honesty, I'm not allowed to have crisps and cookies at home because I'm a bit of a pig. And um, if there's any bad food in the house, I tend to eat it immediately. So I ban bad food from the house because I have no self-control. So that didn't seem like an option. And then there's a Burger King around the corner. And Burger King's a little bit better because they can charge extortionate prices, but you can like mega size up your burger as well. Like if you can get a, you can get a Whopper and then you can add a, get a double Whopper and then you can start adding bacon and all the extras to it and get your fries, get a pudding. And um, you might, you might be able to spend 10 quid. Now between the three of us, that's still only 30 quid. But then we started thinking, well, we can just buy burgers 
Like, let's just top it up with cheeseburgers for the people walking past. Because in all honesty, it's free. Like, there's no point in buying 30 quid. That won't get us out of the penalty of the car parking ticket. We have to spend £50. And once we've hit that £50 limit, that's no penalty. I mean, essentially, it's free Burger King up to 50 quid. Um, so we had an agreement that we were going to just go to Burger King and buy everybody burgers. That was the plan. We were going to hand them out in the street. We were going to hand them out to people in the queue just randomly. But good people, like you have to make an assessment. You don't want to be handing out free Burger King burgers to assholes. That's not going to make the world a little bit of a better place. You've got to assess who you're going to give them to. Do these people look like they genuinely deserve a burger? That was the question as we were walking to the door. And then, because it was a Burger King next to the Coventry Rico Arena where 30,000 people had just gone to see Bon Jovi in concert, the queue was out the door. Estimated queue time for that burger maybe 40 minutes and now we're doing a little bit of maths on our time we're talking about 16 pounds 67 each to queue for 40 minutes so uh, multiply that up pro rata it look at the time jen and james have got work on a monday morning i've got the kids to look after we sacked it all off nobody got a free burger we decided that the equity was just on getting home and getting to sleep sleeping off those beers that we had um so the golf continues today it is the the bm no it's not it's not the bmw open it's the irish open which is on in the background just now um i've got two horses here that i've got my eyes on i've got martin kamer who's running out of holes sadly he's on nine under but the leader's on 13 under and kamer's already on the 11th that's a problem and paul waring on the same oh he's just dropped a just dropped a shot as we speak. So those are my two horses in front of me on the television. Um, Robert Rock shot a 60 yesterday. Where did that come from, Robert Rock? Um, and these guys that occasionally come out of nowhere and then score 60, 61, 62, 59, whatever. Um, your Robert Rocks, your King Sumuns, you know. They're killing us. Well, they don't kill us, but you can't predict that. That's a, a massive outlier in one round that might end up winning this guy the tournament. It's extremely difficult for bookmaker or pro punter or advantage player or mathematical model alike um, to sort of take account of that. Scram cat! Go away, leave me alone. The door's open, you can walk out. And then in the 3M open... Um, that's a little bit tighter. Scott Pierce is at the top of that for me. So that doesn't kick off for uh, a few hours because that's, um, that's the PGA Tour in America. So looking at my golf model, I mean, we're not doing anything different to what we've done for years. It's just now we're documenting it and um, we're hedging less. I mean, a few years ago, there was the ability to get significantly more volume down because we could hedge it and then take take advantage of the extra places. Now we can't get as much uh, volume on. Um, there isn't as much value, but it sort of makes more sense in the long term to value bet these things, especially when, you know, when you're hedging and you're arbing, you are very much at the mercy of the liquidity in the exchange. 
Now, that value is the same whether the liquidity exists or not. It's all about predicting that um, liquidity, and that's what we've done with these models. And in all honesty, now instead of just being uh, tied to the big four or five majors in the year, we can do these more minor tournaments week in, week out, where there is much less liquidity on them. So um, I started formalizing some bets. I mean, in all honesty... Anything that's value is value. You can just bet on it and forget about it. So there's no there's no exact science for formalizing a set of bets every week. But there's a couple of pointers that I thought that might be helpful. I mean, one is that when we're the model that we've created is really looking. It highlights a lot of value from the benefit of having additional places. Um, and a lot of the bias in places you get for people that are extremely high prices, your 200 to ones, your 500 to ones, your 600 to ones, your 1,000 to ones, those guys very rarely win. Um, the guys at the top of the field win the most, obviously, but you tend not to find value at the top of the field. Um, the bookmakers set that up deliberately. And so the game we're trying to play is snipe off a few of these long shot prices that do happen to place. Maybe the occasional one will win. Um, and my strategy for that is really to scan up and down the tracker that we have and to look for golfers that are in the sort of medium price range, you know? We don't often see guys at the top of the field, the 9 to 1s, the 10 to 1s, the 12 to 1s. But anyone that's 20 to 1, I definitely am interested in him. And I'm kind of more interested in a golfer who is 20 to 1 at 130% EV than I am in a golfer that is 500 to 1 at 500% EV. I know the equity and the expected value is higher, for um, the guy who's 500 to 1, but I also have to wait longer for those results to come in. Um, so there's an element of um, playing around with flattening variance. You know, I'm taking worse EV, but I'm more likely to win. So that's all I'm doing. I'm selecting a, a few guys. I'm normally selecting about 8, 9, 10 guys. Maybe not 10, 7, 8, 9 guys on the mi minor tournaments from the tracker that we have, that Lee has, that I used to do. And I'm I'm not putting my tracker up week in, week out, because it takes just a little bit of time to set it up, and it's the same algorithms as Lee's anyway. So I started tracking um, some official bets week in, week out. Now, if you look at the tracker at a particular time, you might see some different guys at the top, because liquidity comes and goes and prices get cut. And really, just because I'm publishing these bets, it doesn't mean that these are the only golfers that are should be got on. You know, if you look at the tracker, you can pick your own. I'm just looking at the tracker over a few days, making an assessment of guys that stay up there, don't get cut. They haven't just bounced in, bounced out because of um, some trading on the exchange. And for the first seven weeks, well, what I've said is that imagine you start with a £1,000 bankroll. I started, I signed £5,000 to this um of my own money to this little experiment, this project, seven weeks ago. But, you know, not everyone wants to just drop £5,000 um, on an experiment, on a golf value betting portfolio that's brand new. So on the tracker, I've just uh, suggested, you know, bet sizes based on a £1,000 bankroll. Well, my bankroll currently 
sits up at £12,500. £12,640 is the amount of money I've got back. Well, not got back. That includes my initial 5000 So I'm £7,500 up, which isn't bad in seven weeks. In fact, it's it's very good. If anything, we've run significantly ahead of um, expected value. And that has to be noted. You know, seven weeks have shown a profit for four of those seven weeks and a loss for three. So we made a big week one, then we had three losing weeks, and then we've had three winning weeks in a row. But let's say we could have had seven losing weeks in a row and it still would have been a viable strategy. Sort of looking at the results over seven weeks, which is maybe how many tournaments is that seven weeks? Uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. Eleven tournaments, you know? That's not enough. It's only, it looks like maybe 100 bets over those 11 tournaments or so. I mean, for example, um, two weeks ago in week seven, in week six, sorry, in the BMW International, I tipped five golfers, all above 50 to one. We had um, Dubuisson in Vegas at 50 to one. We had Lewis at 80 to 1, Croker at 90 to 1, and Andrea Pavan, six places William Hill, 100 to 1. Well, on the final day, on day four, Andrea Pavan shot six under par to see him climb eight places and finish level with Matt Fitzpatrick on 15 under par, and then they went to a playoff. Now, that's a coin flip. That's 50 50 at that point. And if uh, he doesn't win, that's a significant difference in the profits. As it is, he did win. He won the playoff. Uh, I had suggested a £5 each way bet at William Hill at 100 to 1. So that's going to return £600 profit. But had he not beaten Matt Fitzpatrick in that playoff, that doesn't mean anything. It still would have been a positive expected strategy. Um we still would have been doing exactly the same thing week in, week out. And the one thing we're not going to do is we're not going to ever boom this or champion it like we're geniuses because we're not. We're just highlighting. We're balancing where the value is on the bookmakers, which is the most important thing of anything. You know, you could have any model in the world tell you someone's going to win, but if the price isn't there at the bookmaker, then it doesn't mean anything. So that's one of the really useful parts of our tool is that we're 24 hours a day, seven days a week, pinging the um, um, the bookmakers, finding out what the prices are and always ranking the players based on those prices, right? But then on top of that, we have, you know, some of data golf's analytics behind us. And someone did ask us, by the way, are you guys sure you're allowed to use data golf's information in your models. I just want to reassure you, we have got in touch with Data Golf. <laughs> At least I say we, Duncan has. He clearly outlined who we are and what we're doing and what we're using the information for. And they came back with it and they were totally cool with it. So, you know, I wouldn't say that we were a partnership because it very much is just us taking their analytics and putting them into our models. But, um, it's a very useful tool, Data Golf. You can go there and you can sign up for £10 a month yourself, or 10 US dollars a month, which is about the same thing these days. And 
what they have is they have a predictive model. It says here, I'm going to read about the predictive model. The goal of the prediction exercise is to estimate prob probabilities of certain finished positions in golf tournaments, e.g. winning, finishing in the top 10. We are able to obtain these estimates by specifying a probability distribution for each golfer's score. With those distributions in hand, the probability of any tournament result can be estimated through simulation, presumably a Monte Carlo simulation. Let's dig into those details. We model each golfer's performance as normally distributed with some unknown mean and variance. These means can be thought of as the current ability of each golfer. Performance in golf is only meaningful in relation to other golfers. A 72 on one golf course could indicate a very different performance than a 72 on a different course. Therefore, throughout the analysis, we focus on the adjusted strokes gained measures. Out in other words, how many strokes better than you were than some benchmark, than the other players. That allows for direct comparison of performance on any course. To return to our simple probability model of a golfer's performance, we can now more specifically say that we are modeling each golfer's adjusted strokes gained in a given round as normally distributed with some mean and some variance. Um, uh, an obvious but critical point is that our measure of performance is in units of strokes per round. Strokes relative to the field are the currency of the golf game. This decides who wins the golf tournaments. If we can accurately specify each golfer's probability distribution of strokes gained relative to some benchmark, then we can accurately estimate probabilities of certain events occurring in golf tournaments. Right. And then it then details, um, you know, a lot of graphs and a lot of equations behind the specifics of their model. So what they are, what they offer is a couple of things. One, it's totally transparent. And this is good. And this is a methodology that I'm going to be following and bookie bashing when we get all of these value models in the summer done is that I want everything to be totally transparent. And that means that, you know, you can criticize it if you want, as long as you've understood exactly what we're doing, but you can't simply turn around and say, Brooks Koepka is an awful tip. How, how can you tip him? Well, it's a transparent model. Right? So you either agree with the model or you disagree with the model, or you can have some suggestion for improvement, or you can have some cri um, critical analysis of something that's not logically fair. But there's no question of how something can be tipped or how, you know, <laughs> if you know what I mean. Is that the transparency is the key thing. There. So that's the first thing. And secondly, they provide probabilities for win, top five, top 10, top 20 that are without bias. You see, the bookmakers and to some extent the exchanges have bias because the majority of the money for golf tournaments is bet on golfers at the top of the field. The Rory McIlroys, the Tiger Woods, um, the popular golfers. The, and the bookmakers now, they've taken it upon themselves to weight the prices that they offer so that they rarely offer any value at the top of the field. But if you look further down, that's where you find the value. Now, Data Golf's predictive models are without that bias. Does that mean that Data Golf are right and the exchanges are wrong? No, it doesn't. Because the exchanges have other advantages. They are shaped by syndicate money.
So if a large syndicate has identified that a player is overpriced, they'll come in with their thousands or their millions and they'll just smash a price in. Okay, these are syndicates around the world that are well connected, that make money professionally at golf betting, and they'll see that, you know, Rory McIlroy is being held up on the exchange at 12 to 1, um, and um, they'll come in and they'll force the price down to 10 to 1. Um, now, data golf doesn't have the benefit of that smart money, that syndicate money. So the question is, um, somebody asked recently is what is can we always rely on data golf over the exchanges no we can't data golf has specific advantages but it's not the be all and the end all flip that on the head can we always rely on the exchanges over data golf no we can't because there's also bias in the exchanges as a result of the bookmakers prices neither system of identifying a price of a golfer is necessarily better than the other they're both useful for different reasons are um, at in the golf model that we have we primarily use the exchange data that will normally be the priority in the absence of exchange data we do use data golf data in the absence of data golf data we have our own rough equations that we've developed through some regression analysis that maps some of the place prices to the win but they're very rough i wouldn't be staking my too much of my own money on those those are almost just a highlight um value right at the start where a tournament goes up before the end of the previous week's tournament so that's just where we are um in this week's tournament, I have recommended Scott Piercy. He was fifty to one. That was a you know for a thousand pound bankroll. That was a fifteen pound each way bet. He's got a chance in the three M, but he really has to score a low score. And again, as mentioned, Paul Waring was one hundred and twenty five to one. We only had three pounds each way on him. Some of my stakes, you may notice, you that I have two guys at 125 to 1 and different stakes that I recommend on them. And you might ask, why is that? Well, it's because they're different EV, right? Always, when you have very high EV, you should be staking higher. So if you have two bets, one is 150% EV and one is 500% EV, and um, they're both 125 to 1, sort of um, the Kelly model of staking or any sort of sensible staking methodology would suggest that you need to stake more on the bet that is higher EV. Um, Paul Waring was a little bit less EV. He was uh, 215%, so that's why we staked a little bit less, but we still put three quid on him, 125 to one with a, um, with a thousand pound bankroll. So he's got a chance. We'll see where that goes. One thing we don't do is we don't um, we don't ever boom these results. As I said, we could finish off this season next month, this golf season, in negative, and that doesn't mean that our golf prediction model is um, or our golf value betting model is right, and it doesn't mean that it's wrong. Um, we need to have a lot more data and a lot more analysis um, and a lot more time and a lot more tournaments to look back at the performance and determine whether the model is successful or not. I mean, I believe that by, I'm, 
you know, assigning value based on the additional places available to us and the prices that the bookmakers are offering with a combination of um, data golf and exchange data is a very sound methodology. But don't just look at the results and say it's working or it's not working. You know, I fear that someone might look at seven weeks or 12 weeks where the data is, oh, you've lost money, it can't work. Well, no, that's just the variance of value betting. Similarly, just because we actually have made a lot of money and we're running ahead of EV, don't think that that means that it's the greatest value betting model in the world. It's not. It's, it's <laughs> you know, the, the downward trend will continue. Not that I want it to. I do want Paul Waring to win. I was, I was following um, Joseph Bookdale in a conversation with Maths Betting Profit. Who is Maths Betting Profit? At Maths Profit um, is another Twitter tipster. From his language, he seems like he's a rather young person. The problem with him is he he's obviously good at maths. He does have models, but he has no idea about um, value betting variance uh, and uh, how to prove whether any of his models is actually a long-term profitable methodology. And he booms a lot. But one thing he's good at, and this is frustrating for me, he's obviously got a large social media presence. And he does that thing where anytime he wins a bet, he goes boom with 100 O's and then lots of flames next to it. And then the model smashed another one. A lot of people that do this are just making it up. They're literally just scamming you, scamming anyone that will send them money. This guy is maybe worse than a scammer because he actually believes that what he is saying is indicative of success. He's got a banner at the top with lots of equations on it, like E equals MC squared. His little picture symbol is um, some sort of logarithmic equation that he's just lifted from Google Images. And um, he said the other day, he just tweeted, boom, let me count the, oh, I can't be bothered to count the O's, there's over 20 in that boom. Um, AIK won, win 1-0. Um, the model keeps on crushing because he had tipped up AIK to win um, to win to nil at 3.8. So Joseph Buckdahl took him to task over this um, and suggested that um, he's still making silly noises and just evidence that um, a single game has won is no evidence that his model is crushing. But there was an interesting comment he made here. Joseph Bookdown said, given that the tips are with soft books, it's likely a lot of them will shorten if this system is genuinely plus EV. Easy to show, um, but Maths Betting Profit has insisted that he can't be bothered to see what the closing prices are. Why should anyone pay for tips from such a lazy arse? Not mincing his words. Maths Betting Profit says... Profit is still a better indicator than closing odds. I don't know how many times I can say this. If a popular golf tipster tips a 200 to 1 golfer every week that never wins but closes at 80 to 1, is he a good tipster or is he simply tipping a popular bet? Well, this is the ma this is the shame about this guy. This guy, mass betting profit, thinks that he's doing the right, thinks he has a model that works, and unbelievably has a large Twitter following, and he's got more subscribers than Bookie Bashing does. 
And it's because he's good at things that I'm not good at. He knows how to go boom with 18 O's. I don't know where the O is on my keyboard. He knows how Twitter works. I've got a... I just use Twitter for my own kind of personal following people. And uh, um, I've no real interest in driving a social media campaign, even if I did know how to do one. But he obviously has these hundreds and thousands of followers and he knows how to do it. But he also says... If a popular golf tip tips a 200 to 1 golfer every week that never wins but closes it to 80 to 1, is he a good tipster or is he simply tipping a popular bet? He's a good tipster. He's skilled. You know? This is the reason why I put my bets up on um, Tuesday. And if anything, by the way, I'm doing myself a disservice because I don't allow more efficiency and more money to liquidate in the exchanges for me to make a more informed decision. If I wanted to make the most informed decision for my ball, my golf recommendation bets, I would do it an hour before the start of the tournament. That doesn't allow anyone any time to get on. I don't even do it on the Wednesday. I do it on the Tuesday. I do it on the Tuesday evening. Now, uh, a lot of times... I've had a look as a golf tournament starts at my recommended bets and a number of those bets shorten. And that's because we were getting efficient bets at the time that I posted them. Um, and I would definitely say that I am a good and skilled tipster because of the model that we have, which is going to be, you know, significantly more sophisticated than Mr. Math's betting profit. But he still stands there and says, are we uh, good tipsters or are we just tipping popular bets? You're an idiot. Oh boy, oh boy, mom. You sure can hydrate a pizza. A couple of Thursdays ago, we were talking about Frankie Dottori. We were in the middle of it as I was recording the Bashcast. Um, the day started off unspectacularly. He did win in a alley at 5-1. to one. But it got more interesting when he brought home the 13 to do Sangarius in the second race. At that point, um, just for fun, I stuck on um, I stuck on a multiple in the last four races, a series of trebles and the quadruple. Um, and he won the third race, Starcatcher, four to one. And that's when it all really started getting interesting. The bookmakers were taking multiples. They were up for a large liability because after he won the first two races, especially after he won the first three races, people started doing exactly what I did, which is banking every horse that Frankie Dottori was on. The The latter horses steamed in. Stradivarius was two to one in the morning, went off at evens SP, and he won it. And we were left with two races to go. Turgenev was 20 to one the night before, went off at seven to two. Nearly won it, came second to 28 to 1 biometric, saved the bookmakers. And in the last race, I think he was last, wasn't he, from memory, or second last? Third last, questionnaire, 72 favourite. Obviously, much higher in laying that was a positive expected strategy. It wasn't so much that day that was astonishing, it was what happened um, after that day. On the Friday, if you went on to bet 365 a multi billion pound company and you tried to have a multiple on Frankie Dottori the first thing you would have noticed early morning is that you could have only get sp and then the second thing you would have noticed that it wasn't possible they weren't taking the bet and um skybet followed suit and the reason they claim that they were doing this 
is that so many people had cottoned on to Frankie Dettori um, riding winners that lots of people were betting on these multiples. Let's just get a calculator out and see if we can estimate what what price this multiple was. Let's optimistically assume that each horse was six to one the following day, which it wouldn't have been. It would have been longer. But let's say he had six rides at six to one. That would be 117,649 to 1. Now, of course, people are doing lucky 31s that include the doubles, the trebles, the quadruples. But you would imagine the risk tolerance for those things at bookmakers such as Bet365 and Skybet are tolerable. And the sixth fold or the seventh fold, yeah, the sixth fold at 6 to 1 would have been 120,000 to 1. It'll happen once every 120,000 times. I know there's going to be lots and lots and lots of punters betting on that 120,000 to 1, but both Skybet and Bet365 are multi-billion pound companies. The argument from Simon Clare and from Skybet and from Bet365 is that they can't possibly take bets that they cannot pay out on well i think they can pay out on them it's just they've got a series of accountants that are standing there telling them that, that this 120,000 to 1 risk isn't tolerable are they not bookmakers i mean essentially what they're saying is this is gambling and we don't accept the gamble it's unacceptable um yesterday at sandown we had a race. The 2.25 was 13 runners. William Hill were playing five places in it. That would have normally have been decent, but this was a really tight race. You see, 13 runners, five places, one to five odds is a really is really decent when you expect the normal race to either have a couple of hundred to one shots or 66 to one shots or the race have um, a big favorite. In this race, we didn't have that either. We had five horses under 10 to 1, the shortest being 4 to 1, and the longest price was 33 to 1 at SP. So the composition of the race really meant that any of those 13 had a chance of winning. Um, and because of that, that makes the place terms unappealing. Not impossibly difficult to take advantage of. Most of the horses priced under 10 to 1 were good value, and when Mojito won, there was definitely something there. Um, I had some small stakes on Escobar and Key Victory at 12 to 1 and 10 to 1, but they came second and fourth. You don't make money from placing, you make money from winning, so I didn't really clean up there. But um, at uh, Sandown yesterday, Frankie Dettori had five rides, and Coral were refusing bets on five and six leg accumulators uh, on the Frankie Dettori as more and more mug punters were taking awful prices. And remember, remember what we're doing as advantage players. We're taking things over 100%. And most of the time, we're trying our best to put them in multiples and compound them with something else over 100%. Because 103% EV on its own is okay, but 103% times 103%, that's 109%. It's, it's better to place multiples, even though these things come in, more, uh, come in rarely, 
come in less frequently because it compounds, it increases our equity, our expected value. Well, this, the reverse is true with bookmakers, especially in horse racing, where you're taking odds that are significantly lower than the event happening and then throwing them in a multiple. It just gets worse and worse and worse. These five and six leg accumulators from the bookmakers are absolute money spinners, way more than the lottery. You know, they're laying they're laying 10,000 to one on something that has a chance of one in a million of happening. They are. And yet, Coral refused them on um, Frankie Dettori accumulators yesterday. Are you telling me that they don't have enough money in the bank to cover them? I can't know the answer for sure, but I suspect the answer is they do have them. They do have the reserves to co cover them. They just have too many middle management, board level um, accountants, people with the name head in the title of their role or risk in the title of their role that have too much waiting, too much say, too many people sat around a meeting needing to have their voice heard and so they refused these accumulators. MC Yeehaw, Matt Chapman of ITV Racing is a divisive character. He's like Marmite. You either love him or you hate him but nobody is like has a zero opinion of him. It doesn't matter what my opinion is, but this is what he had to say yesterday at Sandown. Absolutely pathetic bookmaking from Coral. Restricting five folds and six folds today. Basically what Coral is saying is, we do not want you to win. What a pathetic attitude for a bookmaker. They really need to grow a pair. Wimbledon is into the second week. Um... Bet365 did return with their two-up offer, which it did look... Or, sorry, in it's not two-up in tennis, is it? What is it? Oh, yeah, no, yeah. Two, go two sets up and then you win. Um, so the advantage play there is that you can obviously stake much higher um, and hedge your bet. And if your player goes two-up and then loses 3-2, then win-win chicken dinner. And if you your account can survive, then that's probably about the best uh, advantage play strategy out there. Certainly more than value betting the tennis. There, there is some concern whether William Hill are taking... Sorry, Bet365 are taking away two up for the football season because it's disappeared from promotions. But they've got a history of like just removing things and bringing them back. And I wouldn't be too concerned about it. Either way, don't be too concerned that it's gone. And if it doesn't come back, don't be too concerned that it hasn't come back. There's always something around the door. It probably is true that in the hedging world, here's what I fear. If, they go, if it goes away, what are the match betters going to do? Because, you know, listen, I'm, I'm, not, I'm no one to look down my nose. If you compare value betting against hedging large stakes on the Premiership at Bet365 and 2UP, it's so much easier to like put a thousand pounds on Chelsea at one point five and then hope they go two up and don't win the game and cash out for five hundred pound profit or fifteen hundred pound profit, whatever the matter. It's really easy. Um doesn't require any intellect, doesn't require any skill, and it's high value. So it's one of those things that is high value for the amount of risk and for the amount of intellect that you need to do it. That's why it's a big favourite with match betters. I can't complain. When, the only the I'd, I'm doing it all the time when I have the opportunity to. What I find is that Bet365 restrict accounts that hit two up and it's very, very, very difficult to mask um, the, the account from the inevitable restrictions. So my problem with it 
is that you need a merry-go-round of Bet365 accounts in order to have sustainable profit there. And having a merry-go-round of Bet365 accounts isn't something that interests me in too much. As I drop my ring. But listen, it's not I'm not I'm not gonna I'm not gonna poo-poo the fact that it's one of the better, probably the best, um advantage play strategies out there. So I hope it comes back. Um but if it doesn't, don't worry about it. There's plenty of other stuff. It's not a problem. I fear what the match betting communities are gonna do. Put that ring away. Because I don't, I don't know, I haven't looked at how much backing and laying opportunities are out there just now, but um, it seems like that was the big one, and you take that away and you're not left with much else. Anyway, it was on again for um, Wimbledon. Um, Other than that, you've got professional tipsters, you've got the bookie bashing tracker who are just trying to beat, you know, whatever we can, spreads, exchanges, top prices. And on that, you know, there's nothing wrong with beating top price by five. If you beat the top price of a bookmaker by 5% of every bet that you place from now until eternity, you'll be showing profit. Someone said, someone commented the other day, I just want to see lays, exchange lays on the track. I don't want to see anything else. I'm not interested in what Tom's opinion is. Of what is value. Listen, all I'm doing, I'm beating things. We're beating the exchange with the lays. We're beating the spreads with the your odds stuff. And we're beating top price plus 5% with odds checker. I promise you this. If you employ a strategy where every bet that you place either beats the exchange, beats the spreads, or beats top price at a bookmaker by 5%, you'll show profit. I promise you. Come with me. Hold my hand and come with me on this. Right? Anyway, sorry, diversion. So the tracker's been doing very well. We had Federer to win 6-0 or 6-1. This is one of these bets that we work out the Dutch of the top price and then I apply a markup on it, right? Um, it was Federer versus... Who was he playing that day? Jay Clark of Great Britain. He won the first set 6-1. That was up at 9-2. If you take in the Dutch... And then you added 5% to the top price of 6-0 and 6-1, which is kind of outrageous because now we're cherry-picking different options and taking the top price. It was still only 5.03. So we're looking at a 5.5 to back 5.03 best price, maybe a bit of markup, 5.1, 5.2. It was a great bet, and it came in. Um, the day before, Djokovic, Pliskova, and Wozniacki. Now, this is a case of all... Of them getting straight sets and the early birds getting the worm. I found this... I wake up many days. I try and beat my son Ewan, who's nine months old now. I try and beat him to waking up in the morning. Because I can get some stuff done. I can go through the bookmakers and find out what's there at five in the morning. And then when he's awake, it's much harder to do that. Right? So I've been getting up earlier and earlier. But he's been figuring this out and he's been getting up earlier. So we're in like this never-ending race of getting up earlier and earlier to beat the other one so tomorrow we're going to be getting up yesterday but i got up at five in the morning i found at ladbrooks and coral they had Djokovic, pliskova and wozniacki all to win in straight sex was five to two now 15 to two now 
alarm bells start ringing. This is a false price. But then you check the lay. The lay is 5.61. I mean, 8.5, 5.61 isn't an outrageous bet. It's more than Coral and Ladbrokes normally offer. Other bookmakers will push things out to 8.5 to back 5.61 to, to lay. Coral and Ladbrokes tend not to. They don't offer very much value at all on anything. In fact, I have a hierarchy or category of books in my um, in my library. And so if I'm short of time, I just open up the primary library and then I look through those. And Coral and, library aren't even in, Coral and Ladbrokes aren't even in the secondary library. They're in the tertiary. They're like, as long, if, as long as I've got an hour and a half, I can go as far as Coral and Ladbrokes because they offer value so little of the time. So when I see 8.5 to back and 5.81 to lay, I think it's going to be a palp. And the problem with Coral historically I've had with palps is that they tend to settle losers as losses and palps as void. It's nasty. It's horrible. It, it's also one of the reasons why I have absolutely no shame for taking them for every single penny that I can. Anyway. On that particular day, which happened to be the third, I'll just click backwards on here. Djokovic was against um, Kudler or Kuda. He won 6-3, 6-2, 6-2 in that match. It was very easy. Pliskova against um, Puig. 6-love the bagel in the first set and 6-4. And that just left Wozniacki versus Kudamatova, who I was listening to on the M6, driving down... Um, through the roadworks from Junction 15 down to the M5. The first set went to a tiebreaker, but Wozniacki won at 7-6. No such drama in the second set as Wozniacki won at 6-3. So the only drama left now is, are Ladbrokes where I place the bet? Are they going to palp it? Are they going to void it? Or are they going to pay out? And to my astonishment, they actually paid the bet out in full. Um, with some concern about whether they were actually going to pay out um, or accept my withdrawal or not. I turned it over once on Casino. Because I feel like if you bet on a palp or something that could be palpable or something that you know is wrong, which I kind of guess I knew that this was wrong when it's bet raised from 5 to 2. Although, by the way, initial price, 3.5, real price, 5.61. What an outrageous initial price. It's almost like they boosted it an equal amount past the fair price as it was under. Does that make sense? Like the, the, the margin between what they were and a fair price was the same as the fair price in a boost. So surely the boost is, you know, reasonable under those considerations. Anyway, it came in uh, and I turned it over once on Frankie Dettori. Lost about 40 quid turning over the £340 that I had from my 85 and um, withdrew it, and it, uh, the withdrawal was acceptable. So accepted. So it hit my bank account, and I'm happy with that. Um, and we've had that was, by the way, that was a weird day. That day, that third of that was a day where that came in at eight point five. Santos and Davis had two rides at four to one. Todd Hope had two rides at nine to four. Um, Cincinnati, Atlanta, and Houston all won at five to one. Everything I bet on that day happened to win. It was, and they were all independent events. It was kind of weird. It really was. Um, but also decent. It was a couple of grand that day, all in all. But there was no reason why everything came in. All of those events were completely independent. I was just ran extremely hot on the 3rd of July. And I always got, to, always got to remember the 3rd of July when I run cold. Anyway, talking about running cold... 
I'm always banging on apparently about uh, Emporium, betting Emporium. Nigel Seeley is the tennis tipster over there. And he has been doing some some bets on Wimbledon and having an absolute torrid time. Um, from day two, here's some of his bets. Uh, Ketchamov, Ketmanovic, I can't pronounce that, Ketmanovic, 2.24, lost. Karlovic, 2.14, lost. TFO, 1.74, lost. Gavrovola, 3.9, lost. Gavrovola, plus 4.5 games, 1.85, lost. Granolias, 1.83, lost. Kudamatova, plus 3.5 games, lost. Next day, Demenawa, 1.79, lost. Koepfer, 3.1, lost. Koepfer, plus 3.5 games, 1.85, lost. Next day, Abelka, plus 3.5, lost. I mean, the guy's getting his ass handed to him. And I've got a little bit of sympathy. Look, he's thin value betting at evens. It's almost like the worst price you can thin value bet. When people are value betting at 10 to 1, 16 to 1, 20 to 1, it's almost like you expect to go on really long losing runs. And you can see it happening. And if you don't win in 20, 30, 40 bets, it's, it's okay. You're betting at 20 to 1. That's what happens when you're betting at 20 to 1, even when you're betting with positive equity. When you're betting at evens, people expect to be winning every other bet, or at least more frequently if you want to be making some money. And it really sucks when you go on a losing run as badly as he has. Now, I have to say, sometimes you can put that losing run down to luck. Sometimes you can put that losing run down to variance. Sometimes you can put that losing run down to a tipster losing his particular edge and whatever it is that he's looking at. Me, myself and I, I actually went quite big uh, having followed Nigel on a few different tournaments and having full trust in uh, his analytical techniques, I chose this tournament to significantly increase my stakes. I mean, significantly as well. And then we went on this massive losing run in the first four days. So I've got a number of options now, right? Mathematically, I should... If I, I, if I had trust in the beginning that he is a positive expected uh, tipster... I should just stick at the same stakes and let the variance ride out. Emotionally, I was struggling to do that. It was almost like uh, I was making money from the best value betting service tracker in the world, which is the bookie bashing tracker. I was making money from that and I was losing it straight to Nigel. And then I'd make money from the bookie bashing tracker and I'd lose it straight to Nigel. And I was like... Can I, what are my options here? I see out the variance, it's probably the mathematically correct thing to do. Drop stakes doesn't seem that clever because um, I don't give myself the opportunity to go on a heater and then catch up on all of those losing bets. So that didn't seem right. Or do I just ditch him, having had faith in him all, all this time? And I chose just to ditch him. Now, now I'm sure he's a long-term... I, well, the results show that over a significant number of bets, betting emporium have returned 2% ROI on tennis, which is really decent, you know? Um, that's beating the exchanges. That's beating the bookmakers' top prices by 2%. It's really good. I don't know why we're going on this losing run. It's probably just sample size and variance, but it was enough for me, and I jumped ship. I have much more trust... The number one thing I have trust in, in the world, is the bookie bashing tracker. And I. this is why. 
when you follow tipsters, as I do, and I put money on what tipsters say that I trust, it's like having a fear of flying. Have you ever been in a car going down the motorway or a bus and thinking, oh my God, the bus driver's going to crash and we're going to die? No, neither have I. Have you ever been in a plane and thought the same thing when some turbulence has hit? I have as well. The reason we think that when the in the aeroplane is because the pilot is flying us in a cabin that we cannot see with training that we did not go through. And in essence, we have to install all of our confidence in a guy who we have absolutely no visual, audio or perceptual sight of. We don't know what he's doing, what he's done, why he's doing it or if we're going to be safe. And we're stuck in this tin cabin at 30,000 feet in the sky, putting all of our trust into Mr. Random Nobody. At least on a bus, you can see the bus driver. Same with the tipster a lot of the time. Right, he may do a write-up where he completely explains all of his reasoning. I mean, Gauff, he's opposed Gauff in every round because she's a 15-year-old girl. And to be fair, she was like 100 to 1 against Hercog in the last game and miraculously pulled that round. And I've now got money on her to win the whole of Wimbledon, so I hope that she does. But um, it still doesn't tell you why the price that they're thinking of is a reasonable price. The notable exception actually sometimes is Channing, who go, who drills down into why the price is good. And that I, that's why I think, even though he had a losing season in the NFL and uh, last season, uh, again, this is betting at evens. I think Channing is one of the better tipsters because you can understand his reasoning behind why the price is good. And if you don't drill down to why even money, 1.7, 2.1 is good, is decent, then I, I can't, blindly follow you and, and one of the reasons behind the bookie bashing tracker is there are at the moment three different mantras we're trying to do in our betting we're either trying to beat the exchange we're trying to beat odd checker top price plus five percent or we're trying to beat the spreads one way or another we're trying to beat something that is established already right it's an established price and if we always beat those three things then we're going to show a profit the problem I have with tipsters sometimes is that I don't understand how they're meant to be beating the prices that they're suggesting. And so in this case, I ditched it and I'm going to stay with the bookie bashing tracker for the rest of Wimbledon. We'll see how we get on. Right, guys, nearly an hour in. It's going to be a longer one this Sunday. So it's time for the break. You're listening to the Bashcast and it's brought to you by Bookie Bashing.
justice. Instead, we will take our retribution. Washington with Fists of Fury from the album Heaven and Earth released 2018 nice. in the bookie bashing news it is the 50th anniversary of the World Series of Poker um, and I am not there this year, primarily because my young son is nine months old. It's simply unfair to Jen for me to go meandering across the pond. I used to visit the World Series of Poker, um, and I used to enjoy it a lot. It's my favourite place on earth, in fact. The last time I went, just two years ago, my daughter uh, was old enough that Jen could survive on her own without going insane um with her which isn't quite the case with Ewan just now so I played the main event a couple of years ago ran deep enough to cash sort of um 1.5x to everybody that had a piece of me from bookiebashing.net I hope to be back at some point just when uh, the small kids are a little bit older the thing about the small kids is it's simply unfair to leave uh leave your wife alone with them crying and needing fed and nappies changing whilst you're swanning around having fun, shoving um, your entire stack into the middle of the felt with nothing but eight high. But um, I've been following the World Series of Poker on the social medias. And from what I can see, the worst beat in the history of mankind happened in the $50,000 Poker Players Championship. So this is... This is my favorite game. The Poker's Player Championship is eight games. So that's a rotation of Limit Hold'em, Limit Omaha, High-Low, um, Raz, Stud, Stud, High-Low, Omaha, Deuce to Seven, Triple Draw, and No Limit Hold'em. So I went over, I played the eight game. I was next to Stephen Chidwick, who is this, um, like one of the, the best poker players from the UK. I played next to him. Uh, in the eight game at the WSOP a few years ago. He ran over me. He was just a machine. When I didn't have it, he knew. And when I had it, 
he also knew. It just showed the difference between us mortals and those supercomputers. So this is the $50,000 buy-in version of the 8 game, which happened last week. And um, the hand in question was deuce to seven, triple draw. So of the eight games in eight game, this one is definitely my favorite and definitely the one that I think I'm strongest in and that I have the largest edge. So deuce to seven, triple draw. Um, did you play poker when you were a kid? You may have played not No Limit Hold'em, which is the standard one these days, which has a flop, a community flop, where all the players share the card. In uh, draw poker, you're dealt, you know, commonly five cards, and you keep those cards to yourself. And you draw some bad cards away, take some new ones, and you try and win with those new ones, right? Let me mute that. Um... So deuce to seven, triple draw. Well, triple draw, you can draw your bad cards away three times. So get rid of your bad cards, then some more, a second chance, and then you get a final chance. Deuce to seven just means that you're playing not for the best hand, but you're playing for the worst hand in poker. So what's the worst hand in poker? Well, straights and flushes count, right? So you can't have two, three, four, five, six, because that's a straight. So what's the worst hand? Well, the worst hand is two, three, four, five, seven, as long as they're not all the same suit, but that's quite rare. So two, three, four, five, seven is the worst hand, or the best hand in deuce to seven triple draw in low ball games. And the second best hand, the second nuts, two, three, four, f- six, seven, and then two, three, four, sorry, two, three, five, six, seven. So, you know, if you're tied for the high card, you go to the next card down. So that's what you're aiming for. Two, three, four, five, Seven. The reason why bad beats in triple draw are worse than bad beats in no limit hold'em is you need a sequence of unlucky events to happen in order in triple draw to get the worst bad beat. What do I mean by that? Well, in no limit hold'em, let's say you've got a pair of aces. Pretty good hand, right? Pair of aces. And then you flop the other two aces in the deck. So you've got ace-ace and ace-ace. That's quads. That's four of a kind. It's an unbelievably strong hand. However, if the other guy is holding the king and queen of hearts and you don't have the ace of hearts, it's on the community board, there's still the chance that the board will run out ten of hearts and jack of hearts. It's unlikely, but if it does, the guy will get a royal flush and beat you. Kind of thing that only happens in James Bond movies. It's that unlikely. But the thing is, that ten of hearts and jack of hearts that can run out, they could come in any order. You could get the ten of the jack or the jack and the ten. So it's not quite, you know, 40 times 40. It's a little bit better than that because you've got an all calculation. It's like 400 to 1, not 1,600 to 1. In this deuce to seven triple draw hand, Bryce Yockey was dealt 2-3. Four, six, seven. And by the way, they're deep in the money. There's like four left as well, which makes it even worse. Two, three, four, six, seven is an unbelievable hand to be dealt in deuce to seven triple draw. It is the second best hand. The only hand that beats it is two, three, four, five, seven. And that crops up once in a blue moon. Very rarely crops up. So you're dealt two, three, four, six, seven. It's almost like getting dealt nine of hearts through to king of hearts. Uh, 
Um, you know, if you were playing a high hand, it just it's it's going to win ninety nine point nine percent of the time. However, his opponent Jos Aria, he was dealt a rather miserable but very common three five six eight queen. Now ace queen. Now the reason this is one of the worst beats ever. Well, the guy with two three four six seven, he has the second nuts. It's the second best hand. There's only one hand that can beat it, and that hand is two three four five seven. Yeah, his opponent has been dealt three, five, six, ace, queen. So the opponent has a six in his hand and he's not going to get rid of that. You don't get rid of the three, five, six and triple draw. You hold on to them. You ditch the ace, queen. So he's going to hold on to the three, five, six. The only way he's going to win this hand is if he draws cards in a particular order. He needs a deuce first up, which he gets. Uh, so he has two, three, four, five, six, queen. And then he needs the four. You see, if he's not going to get the four, he's going to hold on to that six. Does this make sense, right? So if in the next one from two, three, five, six, queen, if he draws a card from there, he's going to have two, three, six, eight, queen. And he's going to hold on to the eight. And he's still going to lose the hand. The only way he's going to win the hand, because he doesn't know how strong the other guy is, is as if he gets the four. He needs the four to be drawn right now. So he gets rid of his queen, and he gets given a four. And now he has two, three, four, five, six. And that's still not a great hand, because he's got a straight. And that means he's got a high hand, so he's going to lose. So now he ditches the six. Two, three, four, five, six, that's the card that you ditch. He needed to get the four in the hand before in order to ditch this six. And now he's ditching the six. And what does he get dealt? 2,547 times out of 2,548 times, Bryce Yockey will win this hand and be okay. One time out of 2,548 times, Josh Aria will get rid of the queen and be dealt the four, and then get rid of the six and be dealt the seven. And it's the most extremely unlucky hand I've ever seen. Here's the commentary on Poker Go. Yeah. yeah. He was just kind of mulling things over. Are you finding the last 280 out? You want to look at your card first? Oh, oh my God! God. I swear on my mother's life I didn't know that this was going to happen, man. I was just kidding around. I, I, I can't even believe what just happened. This is pure oh my God. That's the old one. Frost. My heart is bleeding yeah, for yeah. young Bryce Yaki. Can somebody what? make sure that that's a six? Because I threw a six oh away. You can look at it. Oh my no, God. Sure. You can look at it. I don't care. Yeah, I was just messing around, Dolly. I mean, I, I can't believe it actually happened. Oh, you're straight seven, huh? He started with three, five, six. I see it. I, 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 it's, this is a possible run out where the deuce four comes in and then you pitch a six. I mean, I, oh. Oh, oh my God! Good. This is like this is the worst beat I've ever seen in a televised tournament. Did you really make a wheel? Yeah. Pat. No fucking way! You made a wheel? I pat number two. Oh my God, wow. dude! That's insane. Against three, wow. five, six, also Ali. I want to start crying right now. A fucking wheel. Wow. Oh shit! Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Christ! Holy fuck! I feel your pain, brother. 
No, he doesn't. He feels none of it. No, he feels 140k pay ladder is what he feels. Wow. I mean, we're on a little delay here, but I mean, uh, that's first degree filth. That is first degree filth. Oh, man. He doesn't even know how bad it is. Pat number two, so impossible. And to have allowed three, five, six to turn into a wheel. I mean, that's just the most disgusting hand I ever saw in my entire life. If you ever want to go and play some poker on the Poker Stars on the full tilt, first I advise a time machine where Rake was a little bit more better back 10 years ago and a decade ago. Second, I advise a time machine when the supercomputer Russian kids weren't as good as they are these days. But if you want to play, go and play Deuce to Seven, Triple Draw, Stud Games and Omaha Games because they're a lot more fun and a lot more crushable. And the rest of the games, that's what I reckon. I think I'm just saying that because I can't even beat the micros and know them at hold of them these days because I don't study hard enough. The other stories from the World Series Poker were from the main event. There were two extraordinary disqualifications on day one of the main of the main event. So why do people spend ten thousand um, dollars to enter the main event and then act? Like assholes. Well, I said I played um, the World Series of Poker two years ago. I still, to this day, have a sneaky suspicion that on day three, deep into the tournament with about 20% of the field left, I went to the table in the pavilion room and sat down and there was one unbelievable asshole sat on the table and he was like the table captain and there was something like primitively wrong with this guy like he he was like Jekyll and Hyde it's like he would laugh one second and then turn around and say we've had our fun guys but um listen I'm not joking around I get seriously angry seriously angry if you don't push your chips far out enough for the dealer to reach them and it's like whoa it's like no one's ever had a problem with this. And if the dealer ever has a problem, he or she will say something. It's like it's not your job as the player to get angry on the dealer's behalf. But then, So he was like friendly, jokey, jokey. And then he would get really angry. And then he turned around and he said, um, um, if there's one thing that makes me sick, sick to my back teeth about, um, he was like from the... I don't know, from the deep south of the United States. Sick to my back teeth about the young kids today. They don't know anything about history. And he pointed to the guy next to me, who was like in his young 30s, and he said, um, like, for example, you, do you know who holds the Federal Reserve? <laughs> something like something about the Federal Reserve. And the kid next to me, kid, he was 30. He was like, I don't know, I'm, I'm not even from, the, I'm from Germany. <laughs> he pointed to me and said, I'm from the UK. And he was getting angry that people didn't know about the Federal Reserve of the United States. Kind of like that weird guy that you meet sometimes at a party and is more interested about the catalogization of the of the CDs that are on the wall um, than he is about the people of the party. And so he's getting mad about these really random things. And he's like, um, he's Googling one of the better players on the table tell, and he's finding out all these facts about him and then tell, and starting to be quite homophobic about him. 
um, asking him if he has a boyfriend and this and that, and he's going to see him outside. It was when he said he was going to meet us outside in the car park with a gun that the guy you know, finally got fed up with him and called the floor. And he called the floor on him, and this guy missed two orbits because he'd been so aggressive and unpleasant. And he didn't have that many chips to begin with. And we were deep into day three of the tournament. And two orbits was quite costly for this guy. And when he came back to the table, he shipped his chips in with some junk and got knocked out and left. And it was kind of like, it was quite nice because the table dynamic, everyone was really pleasant at the table other than that guy. And then I ran like God for the rest of the day, which was also a pleasant memory. Um, And then I came home and like a month and a half later, there was the shooting on the Las Vegas Strip where Stephen Paddock killed 58 people at that country and Western um, conference. And to this day, I'm like 50-50 whether the guy on my table was Stephen Paddock or not because he looks a lot like him from the pictures and he was like insanely crazy. So I don't know. And this is the thing. is like the guy on my table was unpleasant and you didn't want anything to do with him. But he was almost certainly like mentally unwell as well, you know? Like the people that give the McCann's grief over Madeleine McCann and say, you know, they they killed their own daughter through giving her antihistamines or not checking on her whilst they went to lunch with their friends in this resort in Portugal and then they hid the body for 25 days and took it away in a hire car. These people, they love the conspiracy theories. They love being angry. They, they want to find a conduit for the anger. And they find it through popularist sort of underground conspiracy theories. And the McCann's are very easy to hate because they're middle class and doctors and good looking or whatever. And they hold it together in the face of adversity. And there was this woman who was really vitriolic about her, like totally nasty, like the, like saying the worst things possible to her to them on the internet about how they killed their child and they deserve to get, you know, cancer and whatever this and that, and they're murderers and they deserve to be behind bars. And it, she went too far. She was like fifty years old. She went too far. And so the police went round to her house. The McCann said, Nah, 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 nah. She's overstepped the mark. Go and have a word with this woman. So they went round to her house. They, they had a word and they, they said to her, if you get in touch with the McCanns on Twitter or wherever, on social media again, then we're going to arrest you. And five days later, she committed suicide. And the thing there was that she was completely mentally unwell. But she was forming on all of her mentally unwell thoughts. She was funneling them through this anger towards McCann. And if you take a step back and think about what was happening, it wasn't really anger against the McCanns that was going on. It was her mental illness that was manifesting itself and manifesting itself, unfortunately for the McCanns, in their direction. And I think the same with this, possibly with this Stephen Paddock guy. He was crazy and he was mentally unwell. Um, And... If I shared a poker table with him and I'm like 50-50, it went as far as I did contact the FBI. I searched down the entry list for the WSOP that year and Stephen Paddock, the name, wasn't there. That doesn't mean that he didn't enter. He could have entered under another name. And I was kind of staring at the photograph that much that I did email the FBI and say, he definitely looks like a weirdo I played poker with um, on day three of the main event. And I didn't hear back from them, so... 
Anyway, why you would pay $10,000 to enter the main event and then get disqualified, I do not know. But there were two disqualifications on day one. The first happened in the Brasilia Red section at the same table as 2015 world champion Joe McKeon. According to several players at the table, after winning a small pot, Georgie Bellinin reached out to his left-hand neighbor's unattended stack as well and scooped up his entire stack in the process to add to his. Allegedly, the player did so with a smile on his face, believing that it was uh, leading some to believe that it was a poor attempt at humor. So he's gone all in. He's won the pot. The, the chips are pushed in his direction. And not only does he take his own chips, but he takes all of the chips belonging to his next door neighbor. Um, the player was subsequently disqualified for stealing another person's chips at the table. It was Jack Ethel who came over and escorted the player out of the tournament area. Poker News can confirm that his chips were removed from the tournament whilst his $10,000 buy-in stays in the tournament. So this is a first-hand account. Here's the thing. Oh, this is uh, sorry. This is Jack Effel, the tournament director. Here's the thing: you're playing the main event. You can't touch another player's chips. The chips that you have in front of you are the ones that belong to you. You shouldn't be touching chips that don't belong to you. Plain and simple. Discussing beyond what was seen at the table, everybody saw the exact same thing. He took the chips that were next to him. They didn't belong to him, and you can't do that when you're playing the main event. When asked if Bellinin was also 86th from all Caesar's properties, Ethel added the following. I'm not going to speak on security concerns, but obviously if you break the rules and take chips, you're not going to be allowed to play in the tournament and you can face all consequences as a result of being disqualified from the tournament as per our rules. So there you go. By the way, I found an interesting fact the other day about the term 86th, which came from the mobsters days of Las Vegas. And it was said that if you needed to get rid of someone, you'd have to drive eight miles out and dig six feet deep. So if you're ever 86, that's what it meant. Um, Tom Peterson, who was on the same table, directly next to Bellini, in fact, said, the guy came in and sat down at seat six. The dealer told him to get into seat five. He didn't speak a lot of English. He was from another country because he had a passport. He said, I want to play deal. The dealer said, no, you have to move. He finally moves, plays a couple of hands, plays them well, loses them both. Then in the next hand, he wins the pot, 1,600 in the pot, one black chip. One pink chip, one yellow chip. The dealer pushes it to him and he just grabs the other pile and puts it right into his without hesitation. The floor came over and disqualified him. Imagine it. Imagine just doing something as stupid as that and getting disqualified and losing your $10,000 buy-in. Well, that wasn't the only disqualification of the day. Not long after Bellinin was escorted off the premises, another player was disqualified from the main event, and this one was just simply outrageous. On table number 317 in the pavilion yellow section, a massive incident occurred just before the first break. 
the player went all in blind before flipping over his hand. So all in blind. It just gets to him and he goes, I'm all in. And then flips over his hand before anyone else has had time to play their hand. And he reveals queen three. Not the best hand to go all in blind with. But the remaining players have to act. And the player in seat one was contemplating his decision and holding 5-5, five, five, which is a, an annoying favourite against queen three, but not a monster favourite. Meanwhile, the moron was shouting, I'm all in blind, look, I'm blind everybody. Whilst covering his eyes and turning around, he then lowered his shorts and mooned the table, yelling, I'm all in blind, and got his cock out for the entire room to see. Then, whilst the number one's seat was still considering his decision, the all-in player took off his shoes and threw them around, with one of them actually hitting the number one seat as he was tanking. The floor stepped in at that point. The number one seat later disclosed... They ended up calling with his 5-5 but lost out to the Queen 3. The player in question got disqualified from the tournament afterwards and allegedly splashed his chips across the fence. Two grand. Right, I'll call the two grand on gamble. Don't splash the pot. You're on a draw, Mike. Go away. This one is not good for you. And in my club, I will splash the pot whenever the fuck I please. On last Wednesday, William Hill announced that they were going to close about 700 betting shops over the next few months, around a third of its retail estate, which puts about 4,500 company staff at risk. Um and up to 12,000 in the industry, and will also mean a cut of around 21 million in media rights payments to British racecourses on top of an unexpected 17 million pound drop in the money collected by the levy board in 2018-19. Only the staff who are going to lose their jobs can be seen as unfortunate or blameless, however, as the 15-year story of the disastrous decision to allow high-speed, high-stakes roulette into Britain's betting shops draws towards what is likely to be a painful conclusion. Okay, let's come away from reading the article just here. So William Hill closed a lot of shops, a lot of staff. You have to have sympathy for the staff. There's um, the uncertainty of being at risk of redundancy is an awful thing, especially for shop staff, you know. As much as I haven't got on with a... Um, a lot of shop staff I've got on with a lot more than I haven't got on with and at the end of the day they are just doing a job they're trying to keep a roof over their head and feed a family and so the anxiety that comes with the uncertainty of knowing that you're going to have a job in a month or two or you're not is an unpleasant situation I've been at risk of uh, redundancy once when me and Jen were both working, this is over a decade ago for a company, a large company, and we were at risk. They were, it was the 2007 credit crash and the company was going to make large-scale redundancies. And we wanted to be made redundant. I would have happily have taken the redundancy check which would have been quite sizable, and then multiplied that by two for the two of us because we were sort of, you know, we were going out with each other, probably going to get married. So 
take the redundancy check, multiply it by two, we'll take a plane to Goa and sit on a hammock for a year. That'd be the plan. I would have loved to have done it as it was. Unfortunately, worst thing happened, they kept us both on. But um, at least we had relatively decent jobs at the time. And these people, um, you know, I don't want to be mean, but they, they might fear what they're going to do if they're not going to do this. They don't have the flexibility of option. So it's a bad news story. Um, um, so the article continues. William Hill, along with other major chains, was allowed to suck billions of pounds from what was already deprived areas, the length and breadth of Britain, when... Labour's 2005 Gambling Act legitimised the gaming machines which they had been quietly introducing to their shops for some time. Opposition to FOBTs and their malign consequences for individuals and communities was widespread and also cut across party lines. Now, I disagree with the article on many levels here. Talks about the eventual cut in maximum stakes from £100 to £2 was, if anything, long overdue. My personal opinion as a libertarian, is that if you want to go into a betting shop and put £100 of your own money into a roulette machine and lose it on roulette in a couple of minutes, that's your business. It might be a financially bad idea, but perhaps you're deriving some sort of pleasantry out of that. And if anyone says you can't afford it, my opinion is that's your business. You're a grown adult. You're over the age of 18. You can manage your own um, finances and I think the common argument is well it's an addiction and people shouldn't be spending that much money on roulette to which I would say well I have an addiction to very expensive meals and I shouldn't be spending this much money on red wine yeah I do and I believe it's no one's business but my own to decide whether I'm going to have a second bottle of this red wine or possibly put my children through private education. That's a choice that I have to make. And I think everyone needs to make their own choices about finance, their own personal finances. And I would have seen FOBTs on in every shop, but I also would have seen more help for people that evidently struggle with them, not capping the limits but identifying the harm and the, those at risk. But you may have seen that there have be, there could have been multiple William Hills, Ladbrokes, Corals in small town high streets. I live in a small Worcestershire village and my local town has two Ladbrokes within a couple of shops from each other. It's unbelievable. I wish there was some value there. I'd visit them more often. And then the next village down, there's another uh, Ladbrokes. So William Hill have now decided that it's unsustainable to offer up as many shops as they do. They still, they, about 18 months ago, they came out of nowhere from offering nothing to being the bookmaker of the day in terms of value. Betfred was always number one for num many years but have now slipped to number two in the rankings. And William Hill, with their shop offers, with the racing offers, uh, with all the concessions that they're bringing people in. I think the reason why William Hill are 
the advantage player's friend is because they offer the value that can't be hedged. And I really hope that the rest of the bookmaker shops go in this direction. Your Ladbrokes and Coles, which tend to have nothing. And your Betfred, the thing about Betfred offering value is that Betfred's boots can be hedged. And that's why there's like £100 limits on their bets, because you can hedge them. You know, they're boosting accumulators that now appear on Smarkets and Matchbook and Betfair. They're, lay, they're, head, they're boosting like top batsmen, things like that. But look, William Hill have got these shop offers. They've got these races that they're doing seven, eight places in like nine horse fields. And then they've got these shop offers. And the ones that have come in this month, I mean, they had Senegal, Algerian, Dundalk all to win and over one goal, seven to back, 5.7 to lay. I don't know if it's the job experience kid who is making up these lines and making mistakes or if they're genuinely offering value it's confusing sometimes it appears like they're not meaning to offer value and they make mistakes and sometimes you just don't know maybe that they are um senegal and algeria to win over two goals is eight to back and six to lay um England to have the most sixes and to win, 2.2 to back and two to lay. That one came in and no goals, no corners, no penalties. In the first seven minutes of Holland versus Sweden, we have a model for that. We worked out as three to back and 2.69 to lay, which is very decent. For every £100 you're putting down, you're making £10 in equity. And they're taking £500 limits in those. And that one came in. Cliftonville, Europa um, and... A and other to win in and over one goal in the Europa League the other night. The Europa League, by the way, we got stiffed when um, Cardiff Metropolitan University won a game which denied a sixteen to one coming in in that um, um, in that teams to win and over one goal that was in. I mean, some of the value is unbelievable. That uh, there was an over fifty goals, seven to back. 4.9 to lay there was the biggest that i saw all month was a nine to back and three to lay which is over 42 goals in sweden division two in the Euro the europa league i i think in situations where it's nine to back and three to lay um they're making a mistake but they're taking 500 pound limits in there in a friendly shop so it's outrageous um how much damage are we doing as a community of advantage players who sit around and work out the value of um these shop offers not that much not compared to the Arbors and not compared to the inefficiencies of William Hill management. So I don't have too much sympathy for them there. I do. The people I have sympathy for are the people that are working behind the desk, haven't been an asshole to me and don't and have some anxiety over what they're going to do next. It's an unpleasant situation. Perhaps our high streets might just be a little bit better off when they're with fewer of the William Hills, that's for sure. Look, guys, I'm not going to look at next week, and the reason I'm not going to look at next week... Well, I know one thing's going on. It's the Open. My big problem is it's um, the depth of summer. All the Copa America Women's World Cup and the rest of that is coming to an end. And um, sport is at its quietest that it possibly could be. So I'm going on holiday with Jen, Sasha, Ewan... And some pals. We're going to go to Cyprus. We're leaving on Saturday. We'll be back the next Saturday. So whatever happens next week, I'm not going to be looking at it. I'm not going to be looking at the site either. I apologise up front that I'm aware that I am 
the primary content giver on the site. My sort of usual day, I try and get up before you, and as I said before, I'm up at five, try and beat the bookmakers, find the value, get everything onto the tracker that I can find, and then go... I sort of go on till lunchtime and then go about to my day, and I'm quiet in the afternoon and try and have a rest then. And when I'm not around, Duncan's around and Lee's around. Um, Lee's the focused on the IT, and Duncan's got a day job. So there's not as much content, but listen, if I worked 52 weeks a year, I'd burn out and it wouldn't be sustainable. The same way as that if I worked seven days a week, I'd burn out and it wouldn't be sustainable, which is why we don't see a lot of value coming around from me on a Monday. But that's okay. If you find any value, stick it on the tracker, whatever it is that you're betting on, make sure it's the right side of plus EV. If you want to share it, put it up in the tracker. If you don't want to share it, that's your prerogative as well. We're all friends. It's cool. I'm going to go and see how much of a tan my pale, pasty, white skin can deal with in the country of Cyprus. And I hopefully should be back with the Bashcast in a couple of weeks. Guys, that, this is Tom, signing out. This is Ben. That's the coolest fucking story I've ever heard in my entire life. That's the thing. Can I hear it again? Do you have time? <laughs>